This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom, welcome to Asia Torah, uh, practical spirituality here in the Jewish quarter overlooking the old city. Everyone in the class, if you think I'm going to talk to this camera, you're wrong. I'll be speaking to you. But uh, I at least introduce the class to everyone, and please um, share this if you're watching this on Facebook. Send it out. Send it out. And uh, everyone just should know, uh, just commercial-wise, for you in the classroom, is that we have women's seminars, uh, the Possible Seminar. I've been running a seminar for 17 years with, uh, we're kind of not sure how many graduates, but we're somewhere around uh, six to 10,000 graduates of the seminar. And uh, it's just that it started before all the high-tech ability to know <laughs> who's who. Um, so thousands of people have done this seminar, and I run a women's one in Jerusalem once to twice a year. And that is coming up literally August 12th, I think. August 12th is coming right up. There will be a Hebrew one a week later, or week, two weeks later. And, um, and then the next ones will be men's in October here in Jerusalem. Oh, Hashem, so excited. I get to stay in Israel for like four months straight, which is like such a gift. I'm usually, like, I know the crowd on El Al. Like, we know each other at this point. I'm not talking about the crew. We know them too. But we actually, we have like a community an airborne community of men. It's all men, no offense, ladies. But, uh, but we hang out, and we've all gotten to know each other for years now on these flights. So all those boneheads who say they can't move to Israel because they're so busy working, and you know they're making money and stuff. Well, you move your family here. Why, why do you have to punish your kids because you've got some major financial obligations in some business? Why do your kids have to suffer? <laughs> I'm back on my rant. <laughs> move to Eretz Israel. Move to Israel. And get on those flights with us. We have a great time. And it's the only time you're without your phone, which is awesome. And we love these flights. You sleep like a baby the whole way there. You fly business because you're flying so much. You just, you got so many points. You just, you're always laying down in a bed. No internet access. And you're just chill. You hit the ground running when you arrive. You do a ton of work, make a bunch of money, and get back to your family and Eretz Israel. So it's like, and it's more fun than anything. You're here at all the holidays. You own your home here. It's like, like, I get these people spending a fortune to rent to be here for Sukkot or Pesach. And while their kids are, while their kids are in some kind of, uh, God knows what kind of education system. You know, when they could be in our crazy education system, which is like super nuts. But, but at least you're learning Torah in Eretz Israel. You know, you're learning Torah here. Not learning Torah in, uh, you know, in Brooklyn or something. <laughs> I can't stop. Okay, one more thing. <laughs> one more. Th- I don't know why I'm doing that. It's probably because it's the nine days and I got like the temple on my mind, but one more little rant, if you don't mind. Um, right now, the setup is thusly, is that what happens if you're from the black hat community, so, so people really want their kids nearby, but on the other hand, they want them to go learn in Israel. So what they do is they get married, the kids get married, and then they send them to Israel for like a year, two, three years of study four years maybe, and then they come back and they go to work and like start s- digging roots, like putting roots in the ground over there in, in uh, Schmutzlars, in, uh, outside of the land of Israel. That's the system right now. And then they dig their roots and then they can't get out. So they, they've p- completely sunk their children. They sunk them in their upbringing because they could have lived here the whole time. And then they sink them later after they're married for a couple years. They sink them back into into schmutz larts. But in a way, we kind of love our schmutz, you know. Like, living in the land of Israel, it's one of those things you only get through Yesurim. Our sages say it's, there's three things that you'll get only through struggle. And 
And they're not saying not to do it. They're saying it's worth it. Um, one of those things is Torah. Torah only is through struggle, if you really want to get Torah. Um, the other is uh, the next world. You're only going to get the next world through struggle. You've got to fight for it. And, and the next is uh, the land of Israel. It says dwell in the land comes with struggle. You've got to struggle for that. You know, you can't just drive up your Lincoln Navigator to some, you know, to Costco here in Israel. You know, you'll be lucky to get Kirkland toilet paper, you know, while you're here. Which Osherah just ran out of, by the way, so I'm kind of freaking out. I don't know what to do. So, now, the... um, So I have a whole new system for all the young families who still haven't married off their children. And it's so beautiful and it's such an awesome idea. And many, everyone I've told this idea to actually likes it. And that is, don't sink your family into another generation outside of Israel. Rather, when your kids get married, keep them near you. Keep them at home for one, two, three, four, five years. Keep them right near you. Rent an apartment for the young couple. You know, a little Hassan Kala Dira. And keep them right near you. You get to have them at your Shabbos table. They're the cutest thing ever, the couple. They start having babies. Keep those grandkids right near you. And after he's studied for a couple years and the marriage is strong, and you train him in a couple fields that are going to be very parnasidic, sorry, very financially lucrative in the land of Israel, when they've been married for about two, three, four years, depending who's next, because you can't hold too many kids you know, pay too many kids' rents at once. But you send them to Israel. Then you send them. And then what happens? Your next kid gets married. And you keep that kid near your house. And you get to have all the nachas from the kids being born. You get to be there for the, all the whole experience. And then after two, three years, four years, five years, depends who's getting married next, because, again, you can't afford having a million kids doing this. And, but when the next kid gets married, that kid goes to Israel. And you just keep going. You just keep going like that. And and after a while, so now you're a man who's 58, 60 to 65. You've married off all your children. They all live in the land of Israel. And now you sell your big fat house and you buy some awesome place here in the land of Israel and you just live it up with all your grandkids and your kids, you know, happily ever after. You just ride into that sunset like the Marlboro Man cowboy boots you know you just you're you're you got it you did it you live in the dream yeah that's the way it's done you don't sink another generation in in schmutzlarts and then of course they say well no because the land of israel is crazy because of that secular zionist government but the secular zionist government is only being controlled by whoever has the most constituents it's based on population well, if you keep sinking generation after generation after generation of uh, 8 to 9, 10, 12 kids per family, as they have in Brooklyn and Lakewood and Muncie and Williamsburg, if you bring those kids here, there's no more crazy government. The government's run by us. And the reason we're still stuck with all the stupid, ridiculous governance that we have governing us here in the land of Israel by people who are trying to surgically reinstall their foreskins is because the people who would actually make a difference in our population, i.e. the only Jewish population that doesn't use birth control, i.e. the Haredi community, the black hat community, had they moved here years ago, back when they saw the miracles of the Six-Day War, we get our biblical territory back. We get the Temple Mount back. 
Like a miracle on the sixth day of the sixth week of the counting of the Sphira, we get a six-day war of this like miraculous, unbelievable, like greatest event ever. Uh, how many seats we need? There's one there. Here's another here. Wow, look at all these. Who let the Jews out? And can you guys bring some chairs? We're just going to fill this whole area. Again, we no, no, no. You guys are actually going to sit on the floor. They, 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 they're used to That's crazy. Here, take this. Whoever's oldest. Oh, dad, dad, yeah. You guys are so cute. I've never had people sit on the floor. You're just missing the craziest rant ever. Okay, okay sit down, everybody. Uh, I thought I saw another chair somewhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, slide over one and give somebody a that's your seat. I can't watch you on your... You're too big for this. You're, you're a... Wow, are you guys like a family here? Yes. Me too. Where are y'all from? Louisiana. Louisiana, wow. Amazing. Down south. Yes, sir. Great, great. You want to you wanna cup? You, you have a chew right now? That's good. Okay. Um, pass some water to this group, by the way. Water and cups, please. Anyway, y'all got the point? Y'all got the point? Yeah. Uh, where, where's, where, is there, are you married? These are my children. You have a wife? I do not. Where are you from originally? Louisiana also? Uh, Ohio. Ohio. Hey, he's from Ohio in the red shirt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ohio. Very nice. And uh, you're of Jewish descent? Not so Fairly, Jewish. Not so much, yes. Your your uh, previous wife is Jewish? No. Not so Jewish. Excellent. Okay, great. Everybody looks right by glass if you walk to life and walk the world. The reason why I asked is we decided what I have to do is I have like, you know, like five, ten thousand people watch this every day. So, so we chose a super hot topic that's extremely controversial called intermarriage. So if we had, so if we, if we had like a Jewish father and these are all his Gentile children because it's a matrilineal to be Jewish, it's based on the mama. So I was going to switch the topic really quick because there's no way I would teach that class of a whole family of like people are going to find out they're Gentile for the first time. You know, a whole family all at once. Like that, that bomb would be like way too big. Okay, here we go. So this week is the final week. It's the final count coming into the, uh, the period of the destruction of the temple. And it is a, this is a, you know, it's not a fun week. And it's a, it's a week that's like super serious, super serious. And, and we want to get, we want to touch on topics that this week that make us more and more real about what's missing. Now, we're from a prophetic tribe. Jewish people are from a prophetic tribe. We are hardcore tribal. We're talking thousands of years old tribe. We're a little different than most tribes because when we think tribe, we think isolation. They're isolated. They're not, you know, they're in the Amazon. You know, you don't get to, like, watch them on YouTube usually, you know, unless you want to get speared or something, like, you know, while the cameraman dies. But the, they're, not, they're, um, they're not so accessible. But we're the children of Abraham... And so is really everyone, because don't forget Abraham had a first son Yishmael. That's their Arab, uh, the Arab uh, nomadic tribes, 
And later, Abraham had a grandson named Esav, who's the father of Western civilization. You know, Esav's nickname was, was Edom, which is Hebrew for Rome, and their descendants all go to Europe. And so you're probably descendants of Esav, most likely, and we're descendants of Jacob. And they're brothers, which makes us cousins. And, and we're also cousins with the Arabs as well, because they were, they were Isaac's. Isaac's brother was Ishmael, the father of the Arabic tribes. So we're all related. But the Jewish people being from Abraham is something very specific. You see, a lot of people want to say Abraham was the first monotheist. But Abraham was not the first monotheist. I mean, all you got to do is open up the Torah. You say, Adam wasn't a monotheist? <laughs> Adam was a monotheist, I promise you. Okay, Eve, monotheist, for sure. You know, their children, monotheists. Like, these are monotheists, everyone. And not only that, we had generations of monotheists. You think Noah wasn't a monotheist? Noah was for sure a monotheist. And he's ten generations before... Abraham. In fact, we have a little song to sing between Noah and Abraham. It goes like this. Noach, shame, aparchat, shelach, Abraham, peleg, reu, su, na, 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 nachor, terach, Avraham. So Avraham's the tenth generation from Noah. And he wasn't the first monotheist. You want to know what he was? Abraham was the first one that God stuck in everyone's face. Because what happened before is if you were into God, you went up to the ashram. You were a monk. You were like a priest. You went up to the Himalayas and you said, Om all day. You stayed out of people's faces for the most part. And people prefer it that way. Because in general, when you're, uh, when you're like a capitalist, you know, like money guy you know, with your Range Rover or SUV or whatever you got, you don't want some like hippie protester in your face, you know? You don't want some, some idealist reminding you that you're chasing a lie. You know, you don't want that. And so God saw that the majority of people are not going to be in the ashram, in the mountaintops. The majority of people are going to be out in civilization making the dough and, and doing the whole, you know, what we could call the Western thing. And that the majority of the population would be doing that. And God commanded Abraham to go be out there, to go make trouble, go be that ointment, fly, sorry, the fly in the ointment, go be that itch you can't scratch. And you'll notice that they have hated us forever. They've hated us forever. Western Civ hates us. It's a law. And the reason they hate us is because we are the constant reminder that, you're, that it's a lie. It's a lie. We're that constant reminder that you're fooling yourself. That there's something so much deeper. And we all touch that deeper all the time because the simple stuff reminds us of that. The simple stuff, like, for example, just going camping. It's such a great reminder that we're happiest when we're simple. We're happiest when things are basic. That's when we're happiest. I mean, I didn't own underwear for about 12 years. Okay? Thanks for sharing. <laughs> I don't wear underwear for 12 years. Okay? Like, keep it simple, man. Keep it simple. Underwear is a capitalist conspiracy. Okay? Yes, ma'am. I'm changing the topic a little. Oh, great. As if I've even started the topic. I'm so scared of our topic. I keep avoiding our topic. Yeah. I'm helping you. Um, something that has, I have questioned for so many years and I never got an answer. Yeah. When the temple was destroyed, how can rocks be burned? I never understood that. How could it be totally destroyed? The temple because, itself. Yeah. Yeah. No, the temple, no, so, like, 
I'm not, yeah, how could stones be destroyed? Okay, so the temple was, first of all, it was made of wood. And it was made specifically from the wood, from wood, so that, so that our, our sages say it was made from wood, so that when, when God was going to burn it. Oh, they knew? Meaning, yeah, yeah. Meaning the God commanded it, the rabbis, the sages, we had prophets running around. So it was made from the cedars in Lebanon. That's why, you know, there's a forest called the Cedars of Lebanon. And those cedars were, there were also cedar groves here. We brought cedars to grow them here for, just for what's called bedekabais, for, uh, how do you call it, maintenance, when we need more, you know, wood. So we, it was made of cedars. And the, and it was made of cedars because it was either going to be us or the temple. And so, and so it's better the temple. And they have this famous saying in Judaism that, that, that when someone loot has a big loss, but it's not a human loss, they say, I'll eat Svalavani on wooden stone. That's what they say, on wooden stone. Like, for example, there was a disastrous fire in my community, and thank God no one got hurt, and they said, everyone's there, like, every single person you've met said on wooden stone, because we've been saying that ever since the temple was destroyed. Better on wooden stone than on human life. And so we got exiled, and we did go through hell, and believe me, those Romans, <laughs> you know, I wish they were heterosexual from what we went through. And the, um, and so it was not pretty. And the, but, but, but the, but it was better the temple or, than us. Um, there were plenty of stones in there. You can actually find temple stones all over the place. Um, we find temple stones in a lot of rare, like, interesting places. Um, that they know were not Roman streets. Now, we have Roman streets that actually have temple pillars. Which also, you can find Roman streets in Israel that they actually hauled beautiful temple pillars into those areas. So stones were removed quite a bit. Um, there is a prophecy that, this, that the Western Wall will never be destroyed, which is pretty interesting, that the Western Wall will never be destroyed. I don't know where that is exactly. Does anyone know where that is? Where it says that? In Malachim? Anyway, but the Western Wall wouldn't be destroyed, and lo and behold, it's still standing. You know, the Western Wall is still there. And, um, yeah, what's up? Is the Western Wall an outer wall of the temple, or is it a... Uh, no, it's just a retaining wall. So yeah, the Temple Mount's an actual mountain, so it doesn't work so well to build a temple up there. So what they did was they, set, they put a giant retaining wall on all sides surrounding it, filled it in, made it flat, and made a mount. You understand? It's, it's an actual mountain, but they made a mount out of the mountain. And the very tip of that mountain is directly under that gold dome, and under there is a rock. Now, we're not really allowed in there as Jews. We're not allowed to hang out up there. Um, we can go up in certain areas, but you've got to know where those areas are, and I suggest if you do it, you go with a, res- a reputable uh, authority on where to walk and where not to walk up there. And, uh, but, the, but under that gold dome is a rock. It's called the Evan Shasia, the foundation stone, and according to our tradition, that is the center of the universe, and the whole entire world expanded from there. And, and that, is, that is the spot of the Holy of Holies. And, and so the, you know, it's pretty good. By the way, it's, a, it's a convenient that the Arabs built that building because when they destroyed the temple, so the, the Romans left it rubble. Their, their thing was, we'll leave it rubble. That'll be the ultimate sign of power. Like, we destroyed Jerusalem, and they left it rubble. Well, what happened later was the Arab came, Arabs came in, in the Muslim, Muslim conquest of the Middle East. They, they came and, and took this area. And when they took the area, their sign of conquest was, we're going to take the spot where the Holy of Holy was, and we're going to build that shrine of the gold dome. 
And then we, they didn't realize we're going to come later, going, where was that spot? And, and they're like, oh, X marks the spot. Like, they perfectly marked it for us. So we know exactly where the Holy of Holies uh, not only was, but will be in the, in the uh, coming soon to a theater near you. There will be a third temple up there, and we will not have 80,000 Muslims putting their butts up to the Holy of Holies <laughs> facing Mecca in a, please God, in a short period of time. Um, it could get a little rough before that, just warning you. Yeah, you have a question? Uh, can we how, how did this become a question and answer? Can we talk about intermarriage? Yeah, we're intermarriage, so. <laughs> so the deal's like this. The deal's like this. The, there's, the Jewish people are supposed to stay as this few in number tribe, the Torah says multiple times that will be few in number. There were, there, there were, um, I think there were more Jews at Sinai than there were Chinese people at that period of time. And the Torah says we'll be few in number, and we've been few in number, we've remained few in number, for various reasons. Whether it be anti-Semitism, meaning murder, or whether it be attrition, meaning Jews assimilating. Um, but in general, we've always remained few in number. We've never really grown in our numbers. And we could go into a long discussion on why and what that's all about, but if the Torah says it, it's meant to be. And that's just the way it's supposed to be. And it makes sense because in the end, we are supposed to be a pilot nation. Think about it. Sinai happens in year 2448 from Adam's birth, which is easy to remember, 2448. 2448 years after Adam's life was Sinai. That means that for two and a half millennia, there was no instruction book for our planet. Two and a half millennia. Why? It was, it was because humanity was supposed to figure it out. I don't know what you got to do to figure it out, but you figure it out. And so people didn't figure it out. People wound up bowing to idols. People wound up going for the intermediary, meaning it's like thanking your waiter. Everyone thanks their waiter. Everyone thanks their waitress, but some people who are hardcore monotheists, like myself, go find the kitchen and actually thank the people who cook the food. That's monotheism. Monotheism is, yeah, they're intermediaries, but go to the boss. Yeah, if, you're, if your father owns Bank of America, don't go to a teller to order checks. You know, go to the, go to the, the CEO, your father. Yeah, and, and God is the father of the planet. And that's, we go straight to God. We don't have intermediaries. Not that we don't. No one should, meaning all of us. And that's why Gentiles are commanded with the seven Noahide laws, keep the seven, go to heaven. They've been given the seven laws, and one of those is no intermediaries. They're not allowed intermediaries. They have to have a direct relationship with God, with no intermediary. Now, that doesn't sound a lot of fun, because it's, it's a lot more tangible to be involved in, in, you know, I don't know, like different types of spirituality, which I'm going to leave nameless right now. But including Christianity, it's a lot more tangible. It can be even feel a little higher. Um, now, by the way, Judaism is way higher, but the amount of dedication you're going to have to have to get to where you get to the high part, like the incredible sacrifice, amazing amounts of study, extreme discipline of thought, and just disciplining a Jewish mind in general is rough. And, but thought in Torah, thought in, 
in, in Judaism, like, till you get to the height that some random Christian can achieve right out Zion Gate here at the, at the place of the Last Supper with their hands up going like this, and they're all freaking out, getting in these ecstatic states. When's the last time you were in an ecstatic state of prayer? When's the last time you had an ecstatic state of prayer? So, you know, it is a tall order. Judaism's a tall order. But it's, but it's, we were created for that. Not just Jews, but the whole world was created to have a direct relationship with the CEO, not with intermediaries, not with the teller, not with the waitress, and not with, with Jesus, actually. You know, and uh, I hate to say anything too controversial here, but uh, but you know, if you want to keep him as like a, you know, a truth seeker, you know, or someone who like, you know, uh, stuck his fist up to the establishment at the time well that's a good martyr that's a good martyr you want to keep him as a martyr in your life that's cool but no prayers no intermediary business and and you want to get ecstatic in your prayer well you can get ecstatic in your prayer to god even do the same exact prayers but do it to god and uh, i think you can attain a ecstatic prayer i think i could take this whole room into a meditative state to an ecstatic state you know in 20 minutes we could all get there. It's just that you've got to be disciplined. The reason I could do it is I'll, I'll be, I'm in charge of your undisciplined mind because guided meditation means you get someone else gets someone else is in charge of your mind. But she's like, can we try that? So <laughs> not right now. And the um, but to be able to do that on your own and to be able to get dedicated to a lifestyle that's involved in extreme discipline of, of, you know, to get to ecstatic states of connection to the creator. That takes discipline and time. Now, let me back up to, to uh, intermarriage, is that we're part of a tribe. Our tribe doesn't feel like a tribe. Everyone thinks Judaism is a religion. Why? Because God created us to be in the face of everybody. We're supposed to always be in these urban environments where we're always a, like a stick in people's spokes. We're a stick in the spokes of Westernism. And and so we don't look like a tribe. We look like a we look just like the Westerners. Well, I don't, but Jews look look they look human at least, and they and they uh, but they're there to get in your face. So people forget we're part of a tribe, and when you forget we're part of a tribe, you start marrying other tribes. You start marrying out, and it's not just that. When you get liberalism, and what's liberalism? Liberalism today's modern liberalism is coming on the heels of one of the greatest moments in all of Western history, and that was the psychedelic era of the late 1960s was when it was during the Vietnam War it was a time of coming out from the the whole you know giant Cadillac consumption era and and uh, just raising that voice up to tyrannical you know government and and no we're not fighting a battle in some rainforest that, that we don't even understand and don't care about and and next thing you know, laboratory um, chemicals like LSD, which had been previously used only for therapy and, and, and sadly for the world today, is that they, they got so much further with the therapy in those days using that. But of course, the, the rehabs and the who knows who lobbied the U.S. government and of course the anti-war protests were very connected to the hippie LSD movement that they made it illegal. And they also made it illegal to be used in therapy and in science and universities, which is the only place LSD could be found at the time. And so, and so all of us are whacked out because, because, meaning our generation, a bunch of wackos, 
is because everyone's stuck with this 50 minute therapy, you know, um, uh, modality that we're all supposed to somehow get well from. I mean, nobody's getting well from that. Nobody's getting well. And I'm not against going to spend some time and money talking to somebody. That's great. But, but don't expect to get well from that. And they, there, there's so much more to wellness than, uh, than psychiatry and pills and pharmacology and stuff like that that comes from the na- nature. Long story short is that movement, one thing that LSD do- does or did is it creates, uh, it blows away all barriers to the point where you realize the oneness of all people, like we're all one. And that created a whole movement which today is being championed by the generally by the political left and very much enjoyed by the millennials and the and what it's done is it's basically we're all one we're all the same we're all one we're all the same now introducing the tribe called Israel Israel's saying we ain't the same man yeah we're chosen we're the chosen people a tribe of people we can't marry you we can't drink your wine we can't eat your food we are separate, and we're not even equal, because, because for example, an Ashkenazi Jew is going to have an 110, 115 IQ, and a lot of Sephardic Jews are going to be right there with them. It's just that for some reason, the Ashkenazi Jews are, are like way off the charts of the whole population in IQ, and that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. We're gonna we're, there will be great advancement having a large population of high IQ people. That's good. It's not bad. But boy, when you have a movement that says we're all the same, it's the Jews are not going to come out very favorably in that situation. And so it's almost like intermarriage, like marrying Gentiles. It's almost like a it's almost like a, a sacrifice of peace to the world. Like, hey, we're all one man. So we're gonna like marry our sons off to your daughters and our daughters off to your sons and we're all gonna sing, you know, Kumbaya, man. We're all going to sing Kumbaya, and we're just going to drop our tribal differences and just, we're just going to let 3,330 years of Plan B, because don't forget Plan 1, Plan A was the two and a half millennia before the Torah. We're going to let go of Plan B, which was the post Torah, like Torah and forward. We're just going to let go of Plan B. God doesn't know what he's doing. You know, and by the way, no one's trying to say God doesn't know what he's doing. Most of these people are anywhere atheists. And the, uh, meaning they don't have a connection to, you know, they may connect to God, but I don't even know what God they're connected to exactly. I mean, the, the only God that there is is this infinite being that's completely unknowable. And so it's certainly, like, that's a pretty nebulous. You know, the Jewish definition of God is extremely nebulous. You know, it's, it's basically nothing not so easy to have like to have a belief in nothing like what's that supposed to mean but before there was something what was there nothing so, and nothing makes nothing but in this case nothing made a world so we're going to call it god so we call it nothing god so like that's pretty nebulous no wonder people go for deities and when god is nothing so auto- automatically you're going to want a deity there and we're praying to nothing Hi, we're doing a we're doing kind of like stand in the back or sit on the floor today. Welcome. And so people drop their differences, and Jews marry Gentiles. And today, in metropolitan areas, the intermarriage rate is in the 
in the 60s plus, 60% plus, of Jews marrying Gentiles. And our prophetic tradition, which is, you realize all the other unique tribes that are out there in those jungles, they're led by these, like, they're led by these heavy-duty mystics, often medicine chiefs, masters of all the medicines of the jungles of the world and stuff. These people, like, they, they know a lot. They know a lot, a lot, a lot. And I've got to be on panels with them. I've actually got to sit with real medicine chiefs, real shamans, and, like, spend time with them and, like, have people ask us questions sitting on panels and stuff. We're talking the same language, man. Meaning all the Kabbalah I've been learning, I kind of emphasize in Kabbalah when I study Jewish mysticism, we're talking the same language as all the mystics of the creation. We, We have a lot in common with the mystical traditions of the world. Kabbalah and mysticism, whether it be in India... Africa, Native, uh, uh, South America, Native American Indians, we're talking the same language with these people. The mystics are all talking the same language. And when we, but, but for us as a tribe of Jews, we just, for some reason, we're all trying to like run away from it. We're all trying to get out of it for some reason, which is crazy. In my opinion, I think National Geographic should have stopped intermarriage, not us rabbis. National Geographic should have said, hey, there's one of the most ancient cultures in the world is trying to wipe itself out. Trying to wipe itself out. We got to stop them. We should have gotten all our grants for Asia Torah's grants should be from National Geographic. It's just that National Geographic is run by Westerners and Westerners like when when Jews wipe themselves out. They like Jews wiping themselves out because we're uncomfortable for people. So Jews just wipe themselves out. They like to wipe themselves out. It's a little peace plan. A little peace plan. A little, little like, uh, yeah, we're just like you. We're all the same. Thank you, thank you. Uh, I just reminding everybody, we, we um, feed a family. This Thursday class, we always feed a family for Shabbat. So um, at the end of the class, we'll send around a couple cups, maybe. And we have any cups? Yeah. We'll send around some cups at the end of the class. And just, if you don't mind, the stuff that folds will be like fish or chicken. And the coins will be drinks for this beautiful family. I took this on years ago, and we've been taking care of them for uh, every Shabbat. And they, hopefully they make a lot of food and eat it during the week as well. Now, the um, anyway, but Jews are great at this. But here's the thing. I just want to say one more thing to y'all. We're not medicine chiefs, man. We're not, I, I'm not some guy with like a bone in my nose, you know, who knows like the, the language of birds and stuff and like, you know, running ayahuasca circles and stuff. That's not what we're doing here. We have a different kind of connection, not that different, but quite different, and that's called prophecy. In the land of Israel, during temple times, there were times where we had millions of prophets. Millions of prophets. If you're from a family of five, the chance of you having one of those people be a prophet, meaning you're looking for your socks, you can just ask your sister, man. Because she knows where it is. She knows where everything is. Yeah. I'm kidding, by the way. Prophets didn't know where things are. Prophecy is just whatever God gives you. You know, and I highly doubt he was bringing up where the missing sock is. Okay? They, it was whatever God gave you. But, the, but we're a nation of prophets. This is prophecy. And I know every person in this room feels that a lost tribe in the Amazon, they're not lost to them, we call them lost, but the lost tribe in the Amazon deserves protecting. Let's keep Westernism away from them so that they can carry on their traditions. But they don't have prophecy. 
We have prophecy. What are these? What am I wearing? This cosmic dental floss. This is a commandment in the Torah. That's a prophecy. We got the Torah in a in a communal prophetic experience, never ever to have happened before nor after, never to be repeated. A communal prophecy. And that's what these sitzes are. And I wore those black boxes this morning. Prophecy. And I keep Shabbat prophecy. And I keep kosher prophecy. Everything we're doing is prophetic. We are a prophetic tradition. And people are just completely letting go of it all in the name of universalism. Well, guess what? If there's anyone who taught this world universalism, it was us. If you just look at history, if you know enough history, and most people don't, but check out the history of the horrific, horrific behavior of governments and civilizations throughout the entire history of the world. And you will see that the Jewish people were always this little small voice of morality, of goodness, of the, of the inalienable, inalienable right of all human beings just for being alive. We, we actually, I mean, not anyone's asking for a Down syndrome baby, but, but we like them. We don't believe in infanticide. We believe we're here to care for this place. This is our garden, and we treat this garden, and we, we, we tend it. And if the garden has a funky-looking, you know, sunflower, we love that sunflower because that's a sunflower from God, and we're going to take care of that sunflower, no matter how freaky it came out of the womb. We've been teaching the world this forever. We taught the world universalism. And here's the funny thing, and I'm going I'm to close very quickly, but here's the funny thing. The funny thing is that we all know if something radical happens to somebody, they're changed forever. Like, for example, let's say you met a, you, let's say a kid in your class, their parents were away on vacation, you know, had a car accident, flew off a cliff and died. So now all of your siblings have friends in their classes from that family, and they are, one sec, Aaron, I'm just closing up, okay? So all your friends... Meaning each kid in the family has a friend who's got an, an orphan in that class. Now, does anyone, is there anyone in the world who would expect those kids to be the same as all the other kids? Yes or no? Are they going to be the same as everybody growing up? No way. And if you go to, uh, tell me where a natural disaster was in the last year or two. Puerto Rico. Hawaii. One of the biggies, though. One of the biggest. Mexico. What happened in Mexico? The earthquake. No, I mean, I mean, like mass. I'm talking like the tsunami or something. Puerto Rico, wherever. Would we ever expect the people in that place to be the same as the rest of the population on the planet after what they went through? Would we expect that? No. Well, how about a nation that stood at Mount Sinai with a THX surround sound Omnimax 3D LSD blowaway experience? Where, where we, our tradition says everyone died there. Not that they died there. Their souls left their bodies. They couldn't hack it. And there are experiences you can even have in this world where you feel like your soul's leaving your body. I mean, uh, this everybody, three million people standing at... Please, I'm really finishing. Three, he's teaching next, so he's being obnoxious, but don't, don't do it. Don't do it it's too late. Just let me finish. Just... He said that last time. No, I did not. So there, there are three million people. Recorded. Please stop. 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 
Iron Place. Three million people stood at Mount Sinai. And the Goyim, sorry, the Gentiles, don't, ex- don't want us to be different. Everyone we know who's ever had anything happen to them that was ex- even un- at all unusual made them different. So how are we not supposed to be different after Sinai? Of course we're different, and we're supposed to be different, and that's fine. There was a girl about to marry a, gu- a Gentile in America, a woman in her late 20s, 28 years old. She was about to marry a Gentile, and her uncle, who had found Judaism, said to her, listen, you can marry the Gentile, but I want to tell you, it's, it hurts me. And she said, why does it hurt you? And he said, well, I don't care if you marry the Gentile. What hurts me is you don't know what you're choosing not. You know nothing about Judaism. But the second you marry that Gentile, you're basically gone. And it hurts me that you're uneducated in this choice. And she said, well, what do you want me to do about it? He says, I'm going to buy you a ticket. I want you to fly to Israel and spend three weeks studying. And she said, really, you do that for me? He said, yeah, I'm buying you a ticket to Israel. So she took the ticket, flies to Israel, spends classes, class time just like you're sitting here right now. And after three weeks of full immersion here, she says, I... How can I do this? I can't marry this guy as much as I love him. And she said, but she's not going to break up with him from here. She's going to fly back, break up with him, and come back and continue her studies. She flies back to him and she tells him, it's over, I can't marry you. Now that I realize what I'm sacrificing, I can't sacrifice that, it's over. And he looks at her in the eyes and says, Hitler should have finished the job. And her, 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 her skin crawls. Her bones freeze. And she was going to marry this guy. She spent a few, spent like a week there with her parents, flew back to Israel. She came to Rebetzin Weinberg, our, our leader's wife, tells Rebetzin Weinberg the story. And you know what Rebetzin Weinberg said? She said, in Europe, in the old days, they killed us. Now they marry us. Thank you very much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.